Welcome to another episode. I'm Sabrina Lynn, and this is Rewilding. I am crazy excited to finally release this interview. So <laughs> a few months ago, Brian Murarescu, author of The Immortality Key, and I got together and we talked all things psychedelics. Um, this book, The Immortality Key, um, the subtitle of it is The Secret History of the Religion with No Name, aka Psychedelics goes into archetypes, goes into some of the feminine mysteries, the cross, so much good stuff. Um, really enjoy this conversation. Brian is just, let me just be really blunt about this. He's just a good dude, just a good, good, good human being. And uh, I am really excited to share this um, this conversation with you and I hope that it brings you so so much I know I have been sharing additional insights um, in our audio podcast versions um, of the show but I think this interview speaks for itself and I don't know that I have anything to add to it today so with that I will leave you to it enjoy the episode Brian, welcome to the show. Oh my God, it is such an honor to be here with you. I'm excited to dive into the mysteries, dive into some conversation around psychedelics and kind of anywhere else we end up going to. Awesome. It's good to see you, Sabrina. <laughs> All right. I was listening to a podcast you did with, I think it was Lex Friedman. Mm -hmm. And his first question to you is, what is God? <laughs> well, first, I'm like, who starts a podcast with that question? But then I'm hearing you speak the words you're speaking about. And I thought, okay, there's kind of no better way. Kind of no better way. So, Brian, can we start there? <laughs> <laughs> with what is God? Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was surprised that that Lex went there, too. Um, and, I, you know, I, did, I didn't really have any... It kind of took me by surprise as it's taken me by surprise now, but that, but that, that's fine. I don't have any good answer for it. And so all, all I did was just tap into to Joseph Campbell, um, who I mentioned throughout the conversation with Lex. I'm happy to talk about him here too. Uh, but I was, I was really influenced by his Power of Myth series, um, which if, if your audience hasn't seen it, I mean, I highly recommend his conversations. Um, goes back to the 1980s, but it's still highly relevant. And whenever... You know, a lot of the six episodes in some way or another will touch on God or what what we think is God. And I guess maybe the best place to start is that I don't know if that word means anything to your audience or if it's a triggering word or if it's bound up with experiences from childhood like it is for me being raised Catholic. But like there there was um, Carl Rahner, I believe, one of these Catholic theologians said that in, in his opinion, we shouldn't use the word God for like half a century. This is from a Catholic for, I mean, ju just to see what would happen, because you know, I don't know if it signifies anything. Um, it's, it's supposed to be a symbol, right? As, as all language, it's, it's, it's supposed to point to that, which is um, not just otherworldly and not just intangible, not just ineffable, but beyond all those categories. And that's why I was quoting Joseph Campbell. Uh, he says that God is a thought, 
God is an idea, but it's reference to that which is beyond thinking and beyond the categories of being and non-being. So if, if, it's, if it's beyond being and non-being, to even talk about it is to immediately get, get God wrong because <laughs> we can't talk about something that both is and is not, right? It's just, it's, it's a total paradox. And I actually think paradox is the best way to think about, about God, um, whatever that, that means to you. But I also was, I try to be quick to make the point that um, if you hear that word and you're thinking about something external, if you're thinking about something up in the clouds, the old man with the beard, if you're thinking about something that has nothing to do with you, I also think that you immediately get God wrong because the way the mystics always talk about it is this sense of divine spark that resides in us, right? Like in, in each of us and in all living things, perhaps all inanimate things. The idea that we are these, these cosmic sparks, that we all share something in common and that to recognize God really is to recognize the truest version of ourselves. Whew. I love that. And I love Joseph Campbell. I love his work. Love that you've woven that. That was, was that the last thing that he did? Was that series? I mean, that um, to me was almost like a culmination of his entire life's work. Sure. He was older at that time. Um, he, he died not long after one of the, the final conversations that he filmed with, right. Bill, with Bill Moyers, the, the, the wonderful journalist who's, who's still around asking provocative questions. It was one of the last filmed conversations I think Joe did. Yeah, yeah. And just for those listening, um, I know we talk a lot about myth and we talk a lot about archetype and that's one of the greatest, like almost like myth busting conversations that I've listened to and how he weaves so many, and I know you do this in your book too, weaves so many different cultures and different archetypes and links them like cool here's this archetype in this tradition how similar is that to this one in this tradition it's kind of the same story kind of the same juju kind of the same for us we use the word shakti a lot just like that like holy spirit energy held or that flavor of the divine held in that in that mm. energy i suppose I suppose now is a great time to reference your book, Brian, and I fucking love what you did. In this <laughs> Seriously. Thanks, man. Seriously. I do not know how you wove facts and science and archaeology and this blows my mind. Like, is this all you've done for the last however many decades? Like, and I feel like you're also just getting started, Brian. Like, where are you going after this? I don't know where this conversation is leading or what my question is, but I'm just kind of saying, holy shit, this thing is, this thing is a thing. This thing is a thing. <laughs> it's a thing. And, I, and I'm only 24 years old. Imagine that. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I started when I came out of the womb. <laughs> <laughs> I've been at that for so now it's it's 13 years. Yeah, I mean, I did. I did. I mean, it, it's the truth. Um, it's, I, I did very little else with my free time yeah. from about 2007 until about 2020. Um, this it was my passion project for fun nights, nights and weekends. I've talked about this a lot, so I won't repeat myself. But I mean, I, I was doing it for fun, which is yeah. the only important thing I, I want to tell you. This was you know, no, no one was paying me to go to the libraries and archives and catacombs. And, and 
Um, it's, it's something I wanted to know for myself, and I really didn't think it was going to be a book. And then I started putting together a proposal when I felt like there was something compelling to communicate. And they picked it up in New York for some reason. And um, that, that's when I really kicked off the road trip uh, to, to Greece and to Italy and to Spain. Um, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do that if it weren't for the book contract. And I will say, I don't think that would have been possible uh, without my friend, Michael Pollan, um, who I had the pleasure of seeing last week. I think his book, How to Change Your Mind, really transformed the, the conversation and turned psychedelics from something uh, taboo or even countercultural into something that really is worthy of, I mean, not just clinical work, not just scientific investigation, not just journalistic intrigue, but also uh, the center of a conversation about how we make meaning, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that that was the big draw for me is that if people find meaning on psychedelics today, right, and we know this from the clinical trials, the obvious question to me was always like, how long has that been happening? Has it been happening for 2000 years? Has it been happening for 20,000 years, 200,000 years? Does it precede our species? Like really big questions start to unravel when you see how meaningful people interpret their psychedelic experience. Yeah. I want to dive into that psychedelic experiences in a minute, but first I want to go back to your inspiration to write this book and just point out how it feels to me is, and you sharing the story of this was just my own journey. This was really just my passion project. And you can feel um, it being inspired from that place. Like it's just inspired from that place with no attachment to the outcome. You weren't mm. writing it to appease someone or to make it into a book or to like, maybe you were writing it to make it into a book, but you weren't seeking and exploring and discovering. And it fucking comes through in the book. <laughs> it's Thank you. awesome. It is, there's just no agenda in there. There's no, um, and you can also feel, uh, there's a transmission in the book. Like, I don't know if you talk much about that. Obviously, I haven't seen all of the billions of interviews that you've done <laughs> around this. But there is, you know, for those listening, like if you're, you know, open to the subtle realms and you're kind of been dabbling in the unseen, there's a transmission in this book. So for me, I've listened to the audio and mm. you just get transported into the world of the mysteries. Mm. And that's just a testament to you, Brian, and how you've been able to bring it through. It's really beautiful. Well, you're, uh, you're this conversation is very good for my self-esteem. Thank you. <laughs> Just in case you needed a feel good moment. Come on, rewilding. <laughs> I don't have any response for that. Thank you. I mean, uh, I'll just repeat what I said. I just, you know, this, um, uh, I, I, I wrote this book for me, right? Um, I, I really, and and the conversation we're having now and all these conversations I've had over the past year, you know, I'm really uncomfortable speaking in public. Uh, and <laughs> I was much more, I was much more comfortable um, well, where I am now, actually, I'm in my basement. Um, you know, I'm, I'm happy being surrounded by books and playing with my daughters. Um, and it, this, this is all very surreal for me um, and, and still very meaningful because what, what happened 
is that the book opened up all these other conversations yeah. that, that I wasn't expecting. And, and I hope it's because I'm trying to be true to the data. You know, I, I asked lots, I will say this, I asked lots of big questions in the book about this religion with no name. Is it possible that this psychedelic cult really did survive like for thousands and thousands of years from the upper Paleolithic making its way to ancient Greece and Christianity? Um, Houston Smith called this the best kept secret in history. The idea that the ancient Greeks were somehow using drugs, maybe they passed it to the earliest Christians. Like, I, I know these are very big ideas and I wanna be very clear. I don't think that my book provides any hard and fast answers to these best kept secrets in history. I went out of my way to try and find whatever scientific data that I could to support theories that again, precede me from the 1970s at least, going back decades even before that. Um, but I think that we're in this really cool moment in 2021 where some of the hard sciences like archaeobotany, archaeochemistry can be paired with the social sciences like psychology, psychiatry, which and, until you know to date have largely been involved in psychedelic studies. But then all these great humanities, all the stuff that Joe Campbell did. I mean, who would have thought that somebody with a background in comparative religion right, or, or comparative mythology has anything relevant to say. And yet, because of psychedelics and the, un, the unraveling of all these archetypes, all these disciplines can finally weigh in on this, on this mystery, which I don't think was the case a generation ago. And so, you know, a lot of this is just my luck of landing at a time when we finally have the technology to dig in. Yeah, yeah, just the perfection of it. Just, and, you know, testament to you again, another feel-good moment of just... <laughs> like following your truth, following your bliss, Joseph Campbell, following your bliss. This is just my passion project. I don't know where this is going, but it's just where I'm called. So, uh, okay, so I'll riff, I'll riff on Joe. Yeah, Joe, about, for those who don't know what follow your bliss means, maybe, maybe that's what we should be talking about. Um, he's, he has some, some really great lines around this. I mean, like young students, he, he taught for a long time and young students will come ask him like what, what they should do. What, what should you study? What should you do with your life? And his response, counterintuitively would not be to pick a topic or again, like we talked about God, to always think about you know, um, external reality. But Joe would say, follow your bliss. And he said that for those who follow their bliss, which is a courageous act, you know, doors will open for you where there wasn't a door or you never thought there would be a door and that there wouldn't be a door for anybody else. And in other words, that if, if you really like discover your passion in life and it can be anything, um, and I know this sounds cheesy and hackneyed and, and maybe it's nothing original, but no, if, if I think the hard part of life is finding that bliss and finding the passion. The hard part is not pursuing it, I don't think, although that takes courage. I think the hard part is, is finding that thing that, that, that gets you out of bed in the morning. And for me, weird as it was, it was this ancient mystery. And it still is. It still is. I could, I could spend decades on this. And so I'm going to take this bliss where, where it takes me. I love it. And you gave me chills, like just those beautiful truth chills of just follow your bliss. And mm. it's not, and it is courage. It is a courageous act. And it is not always the easiest thing to find what that is for each of us. Okay. I want to <clears throat> dive into, what am I feeling? What am I feeling? I'm, I'm feeling the, the psychedelic conversation. I'm feeling and I know you've talked about this a billion times, but for those of you, for those who are listening, who maybe haven't read the book, haven't seen you on interviews, don't necessarily know yet, you have never done psychedelics. Oh yeah, we should have mentioned that. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like I think that's that's such an important 
part of the conversation. Mm. I have not done psychedelics. Um, and I love that we're having this conversation. A lot of participants that come on my retreats have done psychedelics, do psychedelics. I see the difference in people's psyches and their internal wiring and their capacity mm. to go to altered states. I see the difference between people who have done psychedelics and people who haven't. Like I get to watch it from this outside standpoint. So it's in a weird way, a little bit of a stretch, but it's a bit similar to you where I'm also on the outside watching mm. it, observing it, witnessing it. Mm. And so have this standpoint. And I'd love for you to maybe riff off of that and talk a little bit about that standpoint that you're in, your <laughs> viewpoint, your bird's eye view of it. Uh, it's, hmm, it can be a little unsettling. Um, there's, there's, there's lots of peer pressure and I'm, I'm constantly asked like for somebody who's so curious and spent so much time studying this, um, how can you maintain that distance? Does it, does it impact my credibility not to have done it or does it enhance my credibility because, I mean, exactly because I've chosen not to. And, um, <clears throat> I'm at this weird moment where I approached the, the first book, I'm writing a second one now, but I, I approached the first book to be as journalistic and objective as possible because there's lots of great books by uh, older guys who especially you know in decades past um who have experienced the mystery and and write and talk about it very very wonderfully um and i'm going to answer this question differently now that i've talked to michael you know if if i had to do this all over again i mean michael Pollan kind of beat me to the punch i mean he was very he was also a virgin before he wrote how to change your mind um, and he was very methodical about the way that he did it. And if he hadn't written that, maybe there would have been a runway for me to be as equally methodical, but he did it. And so that it left me in this place of having to do something um, original, which is very difficult to do. And so maybe at least part of the originality of this investigation is that my subjective experience doesn't matter. You know, I'm interested in charting the experience as far back as it goes and also asking questions about like why this impacts people today. And that, that, that's the biggest question. I wanna know if it's purely therapeutic, if it is religious, um, if mystical experience can be engineered. Um, if, if that's the case, then my experience, I think is like way, way beside the point. I love that. And I think that that's another one of the great attributes of this book is that it is not subjective. And I think it's so beautiful mm, to have you. written it from that standpoint. Yeah, it's a transmission that is not subjective. It's it's just it's mind blowingly gen genius how you've done it. <laughs> it's just beautiful. We should do this every week, Sabrina. <laughs> Monday morning at eight a.m. Let's have a conversation. <laughs> um, okay, so you were just saying like what interests you is. Is it strictly therapeutic? Is it, you know, this diving into, into this? Can we talk about that and what your findings are? What, I know that this is now subjective because I'm asking you what, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's more, here's what research is showing. Here's what facts are showing. But I do also want to hear your subjective opinion on it mm -hmm. too. Or here's my feel. Here's, I'm such a feeler, right? I am such a, gosh darn feeler. I used to right. be a scientist and then turned into whatever I am now. But um, I would love to just dive into that, Brian, and anything you want to share around that. 
Well, I mean, I, I will say that psychedelics are quite versatile, which is which is why they interest me. And I, I've been saying recently, there aren't that many topics that like 25 different disciplines can weigh in on. And all have all have something significant to say about that. Maybe, maybe it's 50 disciplines. Um, maybe it's unlimited um, because the experience itself is everything from we therapeutic or medicinal to purely recreational, whatever that means. I think there's, there's always a reason to 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 be interested in one of these experiences, there is the purely religious or mystical, there's everything in between, there is microdosing, there is the use of psychedelics to enhance creativity and ideation. We see lots of examples of that as it collides with the tech industry. Um, and then for me, there, there, there's, the, there's the, the archaic perspective, right? Um, when I think about Eleusis, uh, and for those who, who don't know, it's this, you know, this, this ancient, um, spiritual capital um, that was visited by both the Greeks and the Romans. Um, you know, that wasn't an FDA approved medicinal <laughs> retreat center. <laughs> it's a lot more than that. You can't, you can't just pop it into a medicine box. Um, uh, it was administered by the Greek state, which is interesting. Imagine thousands of people descending 13 miles northwest of where I am in Washington, D.C., to go through nine days and nights of if the hypothesis is right, some kind of psychedelic initiation experience. Um, it wasn't purely medicinal to them um, in antiquity, and we can talk about lots of different cults and lot, lots of different mystery rites where that's where that's the case. Uh, but even today, I start page one of my book talking about Dinah Baser, who was one of these volunteers in the NYU end of life or, or um, cancer diagnosis psilocybin trials, uh, psilocybin trials. Um, and you know, she she talks about her experience using the word God that that we started with. And that she's an atheist. She was an atheist before her experience. Somehow remains an atheist. Uh, but she says that you know she went in there to find relief for this crippling anxiety that, that she was suffering after her cancer diagnosis. And she walks away with God. She walks walks away saying that you know she felt as if she was bathed in God's love. I mean that is an ontological insight. Yes, it has therapeutic application, and of, and of course, it did relieve her anxiety, and you know, the, these amazing neuropsychopharmacologists and clinical psychologists are studying these substances exactly because they do seem to relieve anxiety, depression, addiction, PTSD, end-of-life distress, but um, I don't think we understand the mechanism of, of how that, that happens, um, and, and, and I think there, there is something for some people that is kind of spiritual, um, um, mystical experience uh, is not uncommon. I'm not sure how common it is, but it's not uncommon. You know, even the folks at Hopkins will use this mystical experience questionnaire to talk about the, you know, the experience with these volunteers afterwards. And so the short answer to your question is, <laughs> um, you know, psychedelics are kind of a Rorschach test. You kind, you kind of see in them what maybe what, uh, what your interpretive framework is. Um, and, and, and I wouldn't want that, that archaic perspective to be lost in the 21st century conversation. Yeah, I, gosh, I just love this conversation. And I, I am so curious about where I, so I live just outside of Boulder, Colorado, right? I mean, I came from Australia. I had been living in Australia for eight, oh, wow. eight 10 years. Okay. And that's where I started doing the work that I do now, which is the rewilding work, the exploring the mysteries, the sacred union within all of that stuff. And psychedelics were not a thing in Australia eight years ago. Mm. So 
we would talk about these mystical experiences and we would talk about my workshops and people are vomiting in buckets and it's just these very intense heightened experiences and no one would ask me are you doing ayahuasca in your retreats sabrina are, are no because it wasn't a thing that i came here to colorado two years ago and people can't believe that we're not doing any sort of plant medicine that we're not using any sort of substances to alter states of mind mm-hmm. and this is such a just a of course location but i think time and where things are going and taking the stigma out of out of psychedelics as well and the guilt and the shame and the i don't know so i just am curious what your thoughts are what's coming to mind as maybe we open up that conversation yeah, I mean, there, there. I think a lot of the stigma <clears throat> is being addressed, and, and I think, I mean, I, you have to credit the work of someone like Rick Doblin, who's been at this since the 1980s, literally, um, uh, and the work from the the Hopkins Center on Psychedelics and Consciousness Research. I mean, all the clinical work has really transformed, I think, how we think about psychedelics, and I think it had to begin with that therapeutic lens. Um, you know, to, to find value j- j- just because of the yeah. weird moment that we're in, I'll, yeah. wear my, I'll wear my lawyer hat. And, and I mean, just talk about the Controlled Substances Act, um, you know, to, to be to be on schedule one, like most psychedelics are, means that there's there's um, a, a chance of, of, of addiction, abuse, and there's there's no medical benefit is essentially s- some of the yeah. things that, that 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 qualify you for schedule one. And so in order to address that prong about having no medicinal benefit, um, I think the clinical work has been very important to show that things like MDMA or psilocybin um, do in fact have, have clinical value. And that's been happening for 20 years, right? And then Michael Pollan's book comes out a few years ago. And now we're in this wave of decriminalization, <clears throat> maybe even regulation. Um, cities around the country are decriminalizing. You have a place like Oregon, which is the first in the country to, at a statewide level, to regulate psilocybin for therapeutic purposes. I mean, so clearly the the trend is going in one direction and not the other. It's kind of like cannabis. Again, the the trend is going in one direction. The, The train has left the station, I often say. So like whether you're for or against psychedelics um, or cannabis, I feel like um, the drug war was a a massive failure and poorly conceived and um, disproportionately impacted people of color. And we know all this and we have all the stats. And so we need to move on to something different. And the big question is, what is is that something different? Same as cannabis. Is it purely medicinal? Is it purely recreational? Is it sacramental? I think it's going to be the same with psilocybin. I will say, I don't don't foresee a future where psilocybin is available at every 7-Eleven or or corner shop. I don't don't think that makes sense. Um, I also don't think they're going to be strictly regulated in these therapeutic centers approved by the FDA. There, there, There will be a push. Um, towards some kind of sacramentalization of things like psilocybin, if if they can be consumed, um, magic mushrooms I'm talking about, um, if they can be consumed in a way that is safe and with sincere religious belief. I mean, there are laws out there to protect this kind of stuff the same way that you find peyote protected in the Native American church or ayahuasca protected in the Uñado Vegetal here in the United States. So like the concept of merging psychedelics and religion has been happening for years and years and years. And the next frontier is like, how far does that go? 
how how far does the first amendment stretch to protect the exercise of something that someone truly believes um is 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 compelled by or central to their system of belief yeah yeah so here's my next question which i know everyone wants to know this um maybe not everyone but a lot of people will want to know this is people who are thinking about an ayahuasca ceremony or psilocybin for a spiritual experience in that kind of way what would based on your findings and your research what would you say to them i know there are so many people sitting on that fence of gosh this seems like everyone's doing it this seems like definitely the way to go this seems like Mm. the the easy route or the quicker route or the I just know that there's a lot of people on the fence and yeah i'll I'll take i'll take the easy road out (laughs) (laughs) you lawyer you (laughs) so just just short of rendering legal advice which i'm I'm happy to do anybody can call me um i think i i would say you know i i i would paraphrase terence mckenna um i always come back to terence so it's it's not so much about you know where to find your drug of choice, how to approach it, how to make that meaningful. I, I think that by looking into the past, um, so now I'll wear my historian hat, uh, but this is this is what Terence would, would talk about. And in many ways, the prophet of the psychedelic renaissance, I'm sure your audience is familiar with the great Terence McKenna. He, he said something like, you know, to not know your history is to be amnesiac. And uh, if you'd met someone who didn't know where they were, I'm paraphrasing, between 1995 and 2005, you'd describe them as a fairly damaged person. And yet who amongst us knows where Western civilization was between 900 and 1400, let alone 2400 years ago or 10,000 years ago, which is to say, psychedelics are not new. And, and, and I don't think the ritual use of them is new either. And so if you really have a question, if you really feel called or even interested in the topic, um, apart from my book, uh, this is not a plug, I, I really would say look, in, look into history. And that, that's what Terence himself was, was saying. Um, and, and, and the concept of, of all the things that, that interest you, all these archetypes. What, what did Joe Campbell do, right? Joe Campbell was always looking back for a roadmap, right? Um, a way to interpret the present through um, a lot of these cycles that we've already been through. You know, like Plato, the godfather of Western thought, um, apparently went through one of these experiences that he called the holiest of mysteries um, 2,400 years ago. Um, <clears throat> Marcus Aurelius, centuries after him, apparently went through something similar. Um, and and it, was, it was women uh, I want to be careful about that and make make sure that that's obvious. It was it was it was women who were largely responsible for organizing these rites, these initiation rites among the ancient Greeks, the Romans, and you could argue amongst the Paleo Christians too. And so I, I think uncovering some of this history is a great place to start um, because the one thing that comes clear through the clinical literature is that you need to prepare for an experience like this. And for me, it's not about psychedelics per se, it's about that transformative thing that happens in what is essentially a death and rebirth experience. I think that the, the, the magnitude of clinical outcome you see is often tied to that mystical type experience in the lab setting. And so if, if, if that's a worthy goal, 
I think it's worth revisiting the history of where that comes from and what mystical experience itself looks like, what near death itself looks like. Um, and then psychedelics can be a wonderful technology to tap into that, but man, there are lots of archaic techniques of ecstasy to begin studying before that. So here's a question. It's a personal question, Brian. <laughs> this journey that you've been on for the last 13 years, how has this been, or even maybe has this been almost a death and rebirth for you? How has this been a mystical experience for you? How has this transformed you or, you know, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> this, this is why I don't do drugs, man. This is... <laughs> And listen, I'd love to, I'd love to, but you know, this life, life is pretty, life can be very psychedelic. When you, when you follow your bliss life, I've had some psychedelic conversations over the past year and my life has been turned upside down. It's affected my whole family. Um, and it's all been in the absence of the physical ingestion of psychedelics. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and that, that for me, like the process of writing and putting this out has, has been a mystical experience. I've had other mystical experiences. Um, and when I read the psychedelic literature, there is a lot of overlap um, actually in terms of this, this death and rebirth. Uh, it's not just Joseph Campbell, Peter Kingsley, who I quote throughout my book. Uh, one of these great scholars of ancient Greek writes a lot about these rituals as well, and he, I don't think he's a fan of the psychedelic hypothesis, um, but I think he is a fan of Persephone um, amongst, amongst other women um, and goddesses of the past. And the, the one thing that comes across all these rituals is, is the, the genuine attachment to death, um, diving into death in order to understand your own mortality and to be reborn not 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 back into life as it always was but 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 life as it truly is in other words beyond life and death beyond waking and dreaming into the state of consciousness that um, is timeless right and i write and talk a lot about that i think that's the point of the psychedelic experience the mystical experience to reconfigure how you conceive of time and space um, and this is this is what Joe talked about so much. I'll just I'll, I'll stop my rant by 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 quoting him um, that the, the attempt to grasp eternity in the here and now is, is the function of life. Um, psychedelics seem to be able to do that. There are other ways to tap into the eternity of the present moment. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm just feeling um, the word rewired kind of keeps coming to mind and you know how um, almost feeling what you're sharing is and and how you know psychedelics can rewire us to see the unseen or to live it's hard right we start talking about these high mystical truths and you can't even find words for them and so my whole body just starts to like be the example of it but you start to live from this like interconnected place to the all of everything and it, mm. the timelessness that you're speaking of and the um and i think what i'm i'm wanting to just share is that there are so many fucking ways to get to that place and I'm hoping that, you know, we don't end up going into this, this social belief system where we have to do some sort of chemical substance to get there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't. I mean, I, I obviously couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, that's psychedelics. I mean, listen, when, when you look at the at the literature and the data, they are 
awfully potent, awfully reliable, and not to be discarded. However, combined with some other kind of sacramental technique, right? And that can be breathing, it can be firewalking, it can be childbirth, which I've witnessed twice. Um, it can be, um, you know, deep dream work or, um, or silent meditation. I mean, you know, we can go on and on. Um, and, and, and I've experimented with lots of other techniques. Um, and, and I think that, you know, like Eliadi, the great scholar would say, these are the archaic techniques of ecstasy. They, they go back very, very deep. Um, and to the extent that you and I are built the same way as our ancestors 10,000 years ago, um, you know, what would affect them can affect us. Um, he often talked about how the history of religion is nothing else but the intersection of metaphysics and biology. That's one of my, my favorite quotes. Like we're, we're all bags of chemicals, right? We're, we're, all, we're all just bags of drugs walking around, whether it's serotonin or dopamine or, or adrenaline or oxytocin. I mean, it's, it's, all, it's all in us. Um, and people talk about these endogenously experienced states of awareness. And, and I truly believe that there are um, natural, whatever that means, natural ways to have these states of, of enlightenment. And a lifetime of meditation will get you there. Three days of light deprivation and starvation in a cave will probably do something to you. <laughs> whatever it is, um, just die. Just, just be willing to die to who you think you are. That, that, that's, that, yes. that's the big, that, that's the big yes. technique from these mystery schools. Just be willing to die. Not, not a little death, um, you know, Bill Richards at Hopkins says that it has to feel acutely and terrifyingly real. Yeah. Now, a, a good initiation will do that. Sometimes you seek it out and sometimes life just throws it at you. Sometimes it seeks you, right? <laughs> it's chasing <laughs> you. Right. That's right. There's no escape. <laughs> okay. So you mentioned women and we have to go into this, uh, I think. I think my audience would kill me <laughs> go into you use the term in your book and i loved this psychedelic witches <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and you use psychedelic priestesses and i think it was Pith pythia am i saying mm -hmm. that yes yeah. right like and and i would love to just can you maybe just talk a little bit about the history of that, what you found around that, and then we'll go from there. Sure. Well, I mean, a, a big hat tip to my friend Tom Hatsis, who, who's written a wonderful book on psychedelic witches uh, <laughs> called the, the Witch's Ointment. To this day, it's one of my favorite books about that, um, largely the, the medieval history. Um, and that really inspired me to, to begin thinking about pharmacology in the past. Like when you think about Circe, for example, I don't think we've mentioned Circe yet, um, one of these, these goddesses. Um, you know, she, she is the prototypical witch. Uh, the, the word in Greek was pharmakeia, which is you know, someone who knows what they're doing with drugs, right? And, and I, I reference her throughout the book, and I talk about the 10th book of, of Homer's Odyssey, where she, she's there pictured in the founding document, the founding epic of Western literature in, in Homer's epic. She's there mixing up potions and turning men into pigs and doing all kinds of fun stuff. I mean, so, so what is a witch if, if, if not someone with deep pharmacological expertise? And so that's what she's doing in the Odyssey. That, that, that's the person that, that, that she becomes. Um, she, she's, the, she's the brewer of, of, of witchy recipes. Um, and so, you know, 
inspired by that, I went out to try and find the data to, to support it. And turns out the, there, there, there is some archaeobotanical data of some of these witchy potions. In my book, um, I really highlight two. One is, is an ancient beer from about the second century BC that looks to be mixed with something like uh, with ergot. There are micro, microscopic traces of ergot, which is the natural fungus from which LSD can be synthesized. So I won't call it LSD beer, but, but something, something like that um, was found in, in a domestic chapel that looked like uh, a Greek temple of sorts dedicated to Demeter, Persephone, and Hecate, the mother of Circe and the patroness of witchcraft. There's real data that someone was mixing up something funky 2,200 years ago in what looks to be some kind of recreation of the Eleusinian mysteries in what today is Spain, which is, which is mind-blowing. That's the whole first half of my book leads up to that. The second half kind of leads to this Villa Vesuvio, first century, same moment when the gospels are being written, Christianity is descending on uh, the Italian peninsula. There's this farmhouse, this little farmhouse, and there's these dolia, these big containers. And in there, they find very witchy ingredients, um, probably mixed by women. Um, the, inside this, this giant wine vat, they found seeds belonging to opium and cannabis and henbane and black nightshade, um, very witchy stuff. And in addition, bones belonging to lizards, frogs, and toads. So like when, when I brought that to the attention of a guy named Pat McGovern at UPenn, his first reaction is like, is like this, this is very Macbethian. Uh, like how, like, this is some witchy stuff. So whether it's 2000 years ago or 2200, there is data to suggest that our ancient ancestors were mixing up some pretty witchy brews. And tell me why women? Like, have you? Yeah. That's so awesome. Like I didn't, I didn't set out to write a feminist book. <laughs> like, the, the, the more and more you study this stuff, the, the more and more the presence of women just really begins to, to, to shine through. So we talked about these mysteries of Eleusis um, in mainland Greece, northwest of Athens. Originally, those initiation rites that would later call to Plato and Marcus Aurelius and all these men the only ones who leave us testimony, the only ones that we recorded for some reason. Um, the, originally, that was an, uh, preserved exclusively for women. And it was priestesses, we think, who would continue to mix the sacred beverage that was consumed there called the kukion, similar to that beverage from ancient Iberia. The archaeologists on site there also thought it was women. When I talked to Martin Zarnkow, one of the world's premier beer scientists, in Munich, Germany, he reminded me that it was women who were the original brewers far before that in ancient Egypt, ancient Sumeria. Does this go back to the agricultural revolution? It's the same with wine. So they were brewing the beer until the Protestant Reformation and industrialization. It was women who brewed beer and it was women who mixed wine. And that, that's even more flagrant. You, you can't pick up a Dionysian vase and not see a bunch of women um, uh, doing their Minatic thing. They were called Minads, the high followers of Dionysus. They were the ones who would mix the wine. They would go into fix, fits of ecstasy, um, whether at the theater of Dionysus or in the forests and mountains around Greece and Italy. Um, it was women who were called to these ecstatic states through the ritual consumption of something that wasn't ordinary table wine. I don't know what the heck it was. And there were lots of, lots of options out there, uh, but they, they were drawn to madness, states of frenzy and delirium. And it was women who were the experts at cultivating those states of mind.
can we talk about states of frenzy and delirium hmm. a little bit and you know keeping in this i i just would love anything that you can share around this because i know that our audience will just be like hanging on the edge of their seats like what tell us more tell us more and i know that there's so much more in the book but anything else that you feel to share around that i there's just this like so let me share this and maybe it'll spark something else brian is some of the deep work that we do in rewilding is going into these places where we hold some of this trauma or some mm. of these even like old ancestral memories in in our systems or in our psyches or in our energetic field and it's around like the pain and sometimes we just call it the witch wound right the pain of um losing that connection or the pain of that being ripped away or the the atrocities that happened or and we you know access that as a way of letting go of fears and letting go of traumas and wounds and old hurts in order to come to that place of what is my truth where is my bliss so there isn't fear of like fuck i'm actually this witchy medicine woman in this life but i am terrified to brew something because it was ripped away from me mm. So this is a huge part of what the women in rewilding do is to access. And we a lot of times do it through Hecate, mm. through Persephone, through mm. their mysteries and through just the different, you know, like that flavor of Shakti. If you work with Hecate in an embodied way long enough, she will take you to the place where you are shit scared <laughs> of, of, of one, your power and of of whatever it is that your feminine esoteric gifts are or your witchy gifts or your medicine woman gifts or and i yeah so i just want to throw it back over to you with all of that like sorry um, <laughs> <laughs> <Good luck. laughs> okay um that's a lot that's a lot um so I mean, again, this this is where it, it doesn't seem relevant, but you know, the the humanities have something to offer here. Um, the conversations around psychedelics and transformative experience. I mean, I understand why the clinical data matters and the social sciences. You know, it, it, it's possible that psychology might not be a big enough tent for this. I mean, if you're talking about intergenerational trauma, for example, um, and and seeking relief for something like that. You know, the historian might have something to offer you. I mean, just and getting back to Terence McKenna, understanding that there is a tradition of witchcraft, understanding that that there is a tradition of of drugs and women um, and mystery rites and cult ritual that extends into the very heart of Greco-Roman culture, which is to say the thing that inspired like the founding of the United States, right? Um, the, it's at the center of Western civilization. Um, and we talked about ayahuasca. I mentioned peyote. Um, you know, I think I think too often that that plant medicine or, or 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 sacred chemistry is associated with indigenous wisdom knowledge, and and surely it is. It's there, there's a continuity there that lasts for for thousands of years in this part of the world in the new world, and it's profound. Um, but I don't think it's to the exclusion of, of our own sacred tradition. And what I mean by that is this Greco-Roman tradition. And it's weird to think of madness and delirium and frenzy at the root of Western civilization. But 
Professor Ruck, uh, the 85-year-old who I profile throughout the book, whose career was tanked by talking like this in the late 1970s. Um, you know, he, he often talks about the irrational wellspring of consciousness um, and, and ecstasy that is at the foundation of not just these mystery schools, but the Greek state, um, that they would seek out these states of irrationality. As we're talking, I'm looking at the Greeks and the irrational, which is sitting here on, on my table. This is an old book by E.R. Dodds. But just, I mean, just, just look at the cover, the concept that the irrational, madness, delirium, frenzy, is somehow part of Western civilization um, is I think something that, that shouldn't be relegated just to classical studies. I think people should, should know about these states of frenzy um, that Euripides writes about in the Bacchae. Um, and the only message there is that you, you, know, you, you exclude these states of madness to the detriment of civilization. That, that there's something about madness that actually holds us together if we can tap into that primitive part of ourselves in a strategic way. Yeah. And, and this is what the rites of Dionysus were really trying to do. I love that. I love that. And it's almost the, in order to get to that death place, that big death place for the rebirth, to let go of who you think you are, there is a breaking down of the rational, mm. at least in my experiences and what I witness in others, is it's almost that logical, rational part of self has to let go in a way. Mm. Right? And, and sometimes this state of madness or this delirium, you know, you'll hear so many mystics go, the, the mind can't go where the soul goes. Like it can't mm. go there. It can't go to the mysteries. You can't mm. take the logical, rational here. I, I can't which is where you lose words and it's like, well, you get so high, we can't even talk about it anymore. Uh, that, 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 and again, there, there's more than just psychology at stake here. There, there's, there, there's a deep history of, of irrationality. In, in the book, I talk about all these pre-Socratics who enter in, uh, into these incubatory methods um, of spelunking into the underworld, essentially, <laughs> to meet Persephone. Um, uh, Peter Kingsley talks about Parmenides and Empedocles, Pythagoras, amongst many others, who would consciously seek out Persephone in these incubation techniques, these cave chamber techniques, essentially. Um, and, you know, I try to make that all relevant for people by talking about Christianity, which is, it's irrational, um, for two and a half billion people, well, maybe not quite that many, but certainly among Catholics. I mean, you know, every Sunday uh, we're, we're called to an altar to feast on human flesh and blood. And that is not a metaphor. That is not a metaphor. And a lot of American Catholics believe that to be a metaphor because it, it, it messes with your mind. Um, but the doctrine of transubstantiation, I think based on ancient precedent, is that that is not a metaphor. You are feasting on human slash divine flesh and blood. And that comes from the, the Minas. Do you mind if I read two lines from E.R. Dodds? Please, please. I've never done this before, but why not? Um, <laughs> this Brilliant. Is, so this is from the appendix, by the way. It's not even like in the body of the book. And so it just shows you where to look for, for good information. Um, <laughs> late Greek writers explained the omophagia, and that, that's, the, that's when the monads would descend on a sacrificial animal and tear it limb from limb 
and then feast on the raw flesh, blood splattering everywhere. That's not a rational act, by the way. Um, but late Greek writers would explain that as they did the dancing. Dancing can also be an archaic technique of madness. And as some would explain the Christian communion, it was merely a commemorative rite in memory of the day when the infant Dionysus was himself torn to pieces. But the practice seems to rest in fact on a very simple piece of savage, savage logic. The homeopathic effects of a flesh diet are known all over the world. If you want to be lionhearted, eat a lion. If you want to be subtle, eat a snake. Um, those who eat chickens and hares will be cowards. Those who eat pork will get little piggy eyes. Um, but if you want to be a god, eat a god. That's called theophagy. Ooh, that hits my whole body. If you want to be a god, eat a god. Yeah. Wow. Brian, I love this conversation. I love your mind, really. <laughs> like, yeah. <clears throat> okay. So, what are you working on now? Can I ask that, or is that top secret? Um, it's uh, there are levels of secrecy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not. It's not a top classification level, but I, I would say that. It's it's probably no surprise that uh, this 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 topic won't go away. Um, so <laughs> I am trying to penetrate the mystery uh, as much as I can. Can you explain that a little bit? The mystery. Anything that comes to mind? I know that's impossible, but <laughs> so, I mean, as as I just read, I, I don't think that these mysteries disappeared in antiquity. I, maybe that that's the best way to put it. Um, like when I, I was with the archaeologist at Eleusis, um, Papi Papangeli, and I just that, that her phrase will not stop ringing in my head. Um, some mysteries are best left mysteries. And she was like, why, why do you need an answer to this? I mean, like, forget the psychedelic hypothesis. Why do you need an answer? And, you know, she's partially right. If, and maybe that's partially why I haven't tried psychedelics. If, if, if I find the answer or I'm disappointed, by the hypothesis, maybe the whole journey comes to an end when for me, you know, following my bliss kind of demands <laughs> an open-ended mystery. Um, so when I talk about the mystery, I talk about not just the historicity of everything that obsesses me, but what this means today. I, I mean, I, it's, it's hard for me not to equate the psychedelic experience, the way it's being practiced today, at least in clinical form. Um, and I've, I've talked with religious professionals um, who have interesting things to say, but it, it's hard for me not to equate what they experience with something that could have been happening for thousands of years. And that to me is, is the great mystery, the transcendence of life and death into that timeless state of awareness. It seems to me that we have technology in our hands to essentially engineer mysticism, which raises very big questions that folks like Huxley and Alan Watts were talking about in the 60s. Does this portend a religious revolution? Is this the popular outbreak of mysticism that made people nervous a couple generations ago? Uh, this, whatever it is, it's very powerful technology. Yeah, yeah. It's, to me, the word that keeps coming is it makes those states so accessible. Um, hmm. I work, so this is, I'll just share this piece and 
kind of see where it goes. When I moved from Australia, holding circles in Australia and retreats in Australia and came here to Boulder and ran a workshop with men and women. And you can see, and everyone gets really deep and very open and very, very honest and very raw after you work with people for days and days and days in altered states of consciousness. And you get to know like who's experienced or who's done psychedelics, who hasn't done anything in those realms. And I can really see the profound effect that psychedelics have had on people's capacity to access the mysteries. Hmm. Can really see it. And so, you know, what you're saying is like, it's like, um, like holding fire. It's like holding fire in your hand. Um, we could meditate for an entire lifetime to access those places and spend maybe even lifetimes to be able to come to those ways of accessing the mysteries or accessing mm. those states of being mm. or let's just say like embodying embodying divinity not that we're not all always embodying divinity because we are but knowing that we are the divine and so mm. coming to that place of knowing that gnosis place mm. um, and seeing how you know and, and even hearing that story that you started with in your book I can't remember that woman's name, but just that story of one time, one experience, mm. you now have this gnosis, right? It's right. Yeah. Right. And well, if history teaches anything, it's that that the gnostification of society is messy. It's very, which is why I, I invite people like Terence did to to revisit the past and what this all means. I mean, I mean, Promethean fire is high technology. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I was thinking when I was saying we have the fire. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't belong in your living room hearth, um, uh, like nuclear technology. I mean, I, I really do think it's it, it's that powerful, and we've always struggled with how to um, how to contain something like that. So, just quickly, at Eleusis like the clinical trials, it was a once in a lifetime experience that was strictly controlled and regulated by the Athenian state and the hereditary families who ran it for something like 2000 years. Um, and you know, when the Romans took over the Greeks, they didn't shut it down, which is really interesting. Like the, the, this, this was kept going because of how controlled it was. And the Romans weren't big fans of all Greek religion, i.e. the rites of Dionysus well, the Roman Senate went after them to the tune of 6,000 people that they exterminated in one day who were the followers of Dionysus. So Dionysus is bad because it's women initiating impressionable young men in the forest of Italy. Eleusis, okay, because it was all buttoned up in this, in this sanctuary that was holy to Demeter. So where, where do your Gnostics belong? The people who are thirsting for the direct experience of God. Um, they had a hard time figuring that out. Then here comes Jesus. Look at this cat. So Jesus, and okay, it's one way to interpret this story. I, obviously, I read it very Hellenically, and I think there's great reason to do that, especially in the Gospel of John. But, but if you look at the Last Supper, if you look at the Eucharist, it, it, I mean, it is kind of an invitation of the mysteries into your dining room. Okay, so, so Dionysus was unhappy with the Lucis the only place in the world you can go get initiated. Dionysus says, no, it's in the mountains and forests. It's in our witchy churches. It's, it's whenever we gather. 
um, you know, Jesus comes along, doesn't just um, democratize all this, but, but domesticates a mystery meal that was illegal. Um, this was, it was to profane the mysteries to celebrate them in your dining room. It's exactly what Jesus was calling people to. Um, now we have a Christianity today that's very, very different, but if you look at paleo-Christianity, um, you see yet again um, another messy moment of offering people direct access to God, to his flesh, and sharing, and sharing that flesh and blood. You know, Christianity is illegal. The Romans didn't like Christianity for hundreds of years, thrown to the lions. Look at, look at the martyr stories. Um, and so it was only gradually that Christianity won the support of the Roman Empire, but for a long time, lots of suspicion of these cannibals engaging in direct mystical experience with their departed savior it looked a lot like Dionysus to an extent. And yet here are people gathering in small groups, I, I would say ordinarily, under the tutelage of women, they're, they're at home um, celebrating something that was illegal and they did it for a reason. And here we are, psychedelics are illegal. Um, they're being practiced in the underground, gently coming into the light of consciousness through these clinical trials. We find ourselves at another moment where as an entire society and a whole planet, we're gonna have to decide what to do with this Promethean technology. Wow. Wow, that line, history repeats itself. <laughs> I, Brian, I am not a history buff at all, um, but your work really brings something forward that I think is so beautiful and so, um, I don't know, and just the way that you did it is stunning, really stunning, and I love that we've come to this place in the conversation as we kind of wrap things up, but this place in the conversation is here we are, this is where things are. And to look back and go, it's not new. It's, <laughs> it's not a new technology. This is not a new place to be at. And I love that you're shining a light on this. I love the work that you're doing in the world. Really, 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 really. <laughs> you're very kind i look forward to next week's conversation <laughs> <laughs> monday morning monday morning conversation 8 a.m <laughs> oh my gosh brian what an absolute honor again brian's book that we've been talking about is the immortality key is there anything else that you would want to point people to or to share with people in this moment or anything else that you kind of want to close on Oh, I just want to express gratitude for, for your time and, and those listening. Um, and who, who better to quote than Joe Campbell? Let's, if we all followed our bliss, what kind of world would we have on our hands? I think that's this. Now talk about powerful technology. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Thank you so much, Brian. What an absolute honor. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you.